Thanks for joining us for our corn and soybean outlook update that's following the USDA's February WASDE report. Uh, I'm Jim Minter, Director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture, and joining me today are my colleagues, Dr. Nathan Thompson, who's an Associate Professor of Ag Economics here at Purdue, and Dr. Michael Langemeyer, who's a Professor of Ag Economics and also the Associate Director of the Center for Commercial Agriculture. Let's go ahead and get started. And of course, USDA's balance sheets were updated on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, the corn balance sheet didn't change a lot. The only significant change was the food, seed, and industrial category. Uh, usage category did decline a little bit, uh, and that was because USDA reduced the uh, ethanol usage category. They dropped the ethanol usage from 5.275 billion bushels to 5.25 billion bushels, and that did push up the carryover. That did push up the ending stocks estimate to 1.267 billion bushels up from 1.242. And then USDA didn't change the uh, average farm price at all. If you look at what's going on in the ethanol world, those margins have tightened uh, significantly compared to what they were this time last year. Uh, and really we're weakening as uh, we progress through the kind of late fall period and into the end of the year. They've been bouncing around between zero and 20 cents using the Iowa State uh, estimated margins data on a, on a per gallon basis. Um, so ethanol margins, not what you'd like to see in terms of encouraging usage. And if you look at the actual production numbers, cumulative ethanol production since the start of the 22 crop year on September 1 is down about 5% compared to where it was uh, a year for the 21 crop. And you can look at the, the bars on the chart that we've uh, got on the screen and, and see what's taking place there. Uh, just week after week, those ethanol production numbers have been lagging the prior year. And, and part of that's because of the weakness in the ethanol margins, and part of it's just because of weaker uh, gasoline demand. So that combination has really kind of held back ethanol usage. Um, and as a result, I don't think we're going to see much of a likelihood of seeing that bounce back as we head through the rest of this marketing year. Um, if you look at corn used for ethanol, that 5.25 billion bushels is really kind of indicating, again, that we're, we've sort of capped what's taken place with respect to ethanol usage. Uh, last year's number was 5.33 billion bushels. The year before that, of course, was affected by COVID, and so was the one before that. They were both hovering around 5 billion bushels. But if you go back to our peak year, 2017, we were at 5.6 billion bushels. It just doesn't seem likely that we're going to get back to those kind of usage levels anytime here in the 22 crop year or, or for example, the 23 crop year, either one. Um, if you think about the export side, uh, one of the interesting things is taking place here. USDA did not change the export forecast for the U.S., but they did make some changes in export forecast specifically for South America. And if you look at what's taking place, the significant thing is when you look at our major competitors' exports versus the U.S., there's really a difference there. Um, over the last couple of years, U.S. exports dropping from 2.75 billion bushels to USDA's projection for the current marketing year of 1.92 billion bushels. And when you look at our major competitors, which are comprised of Argentina, Brazil, South Africa, Ukraine, and Russia, and of course Russia is not a large producer, but they are, they are a top five, um, they're at 4.5 billion bushels, whereas two years ago they were at 3.68 billion bushels. And Michael, you made a comment, I think, yesterday to me talking about the fact that, you know, it looks like Brazil is going to potentially overtake the U.S. with respect to exports. Yes, uh, that, that certainly is the case. And, and, and it's a combination of two different things. I think as they add soybean acres, they, they naturally add more second crop corn. And I think also the yields continue to increase probably at a faster rate than what ours are because they started at a, started at a, a, a lower lower yield uh, than we did. And so I think that combination you know, creates a lot of corn. Yeah. So 
the challenge there is, you know, what can we do to see U.S. exports rebound? And there's really not a lot in the short run. I think one of the challenges the U.S. has been facing is the strength in the U.S. dollar. Um, and that would certainly help if we saw some weakness in the dollar. Uh, I'm not going to project that happening anytime soon, given what's going on at the Federal Reserve Bank. So I think that export projection is probably pretty close. Uh, and, and I don't expect to see too much change there going forward. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out as we get into the summer, though. Um, perhaps the biggest wild card on the export side is what's taken place with respect to Ukraine. Again, uh, USDA did not change their export forecast for Ukraine in this report, but corn exports, exports coming out of Ukraine remain a real wild card for the corn outlook. USDA is projecting exports from Ukraine of almost 900 million bushels, um, in the 21 crop year, their estimate is we were a little over a billion bushels. In the 20 crop year, a little under a billion bushels. So, you know, for, if you think about it from a standpoint of what's taking place in Ukraine with respect to the war, it's somewhat surprising if they're able to actually hit these kind of export numbers. Now, I'm not going to say it's not going to happen. Uh, they did manage to move more corn than probably anybody thought they could immediately following the invasion last February, but uh, those are still pretty big export numbers coming out of Ukraine. And then as you think a little farther into the future, lots of concerns about what, <clears throat> excuse me, what's going to take place with respect to planting the crop uh, this spring in 23. We're picking up reports about uh, difficulties in obtaining fertilizer, uh, some difficulties on the seed side. Fertilizer is probably the one that I've heard the most about. Michael, have you been following that very closely? Not specifically, but that, that certainly their production is going to be a wild card this year. Uh, just a lot of concerns, you know, inputs, in, input issues, uh, get, you know, getting the getting the inputs and just getting the crop in the ground, given it, everything that's going on over there. Yeah, the likelihood that the war is, get, war is going to be settled in time for spring planting season seems very low. So, uh, again, I just think that's a wild card going forward. Um, if you look at USDA's ending stocks projection, it did increase slightly, as I indicated earlier. Uh, and if you look at that relative to usage, that puts that up over 9%. I think last month we were at 8.9%. So if you look at it historically, that's still pretty tight. Um, you know, if you go back to uh, the 2011, 2012, 2013 timeframe, we had carryovers in the 7 to 9% range. So we're in that ballpark, and it wouldn't take much for that to tighten up some more. Um, and one example would be if those exports, from example, from Ukraine uh, fell short of that 900 million bushels that USDA is currently projecting. So um, we'll keep an eye on that. But it's still, from a historical perspective, that suggests some volatility going forward, right, uh, Nathan? And we'll talk more about basis later, but it has some volatility implications for basis, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, right? The corn and soybean... Uh, um, carryovers are tight, and that has a lot of implications for volatility in, in both basis and futures markets. Yeah, I mean, you think about the basis, when you get tight carryovers, you can get spot shortages, and that's what leads to these spikes in basis levels, yeah. right? So, And it makes that upcoming uh, planning intention report extremely important. Yeah. It makes a lot of difference whether we have 88 million bushels, of, a million acres of corn versus 92. Yeah, good point. So you've been looking at what's going on with respect to bids for corn and thinking about storage opportunities. Should people be hanging on to corn uh, from this point forward? Yeah, so just taking a look at kind of one specific uh, location and what their kind of forward contract bids are going through uh, middle of the summer here. And so, you know, what we have is the kind of darker gold bar that runs uh, along the bottom being um, those forward contract bids. 
Uh, and then the two other lines being kind of these implied break-evens where basically I'm taking today's price plus uh, a storage cost and an opportunity cost of holding onto that grain, one of those being an on-farm scenario, one of those being uh, a commercial storage scenario. And so what you can see is that uh, obviously those forward contract bids are well below what I'm projecting as these kind of implied break-evens based on my cost uh, assumptions. And again, basically what that's telling us is at least if you're looking at forward contract bids, you know, there's not a lot of incentive in those prices to be looking at a, a hanging on to, to grain, you know, as we move forward through the remainder of the crop marketing year. And again, it's interesting, you know, there's, there's two components in that forward contract bid, one being uh, carry in futures markets, one being kind of appreciation and basis. And I kind of talk about that. And those two things ebb and flow in terms of, you know, what the structure of that line looks like. And right now it's interesting, it's kind of, you know, flipped from where it's been in recent months. And now we have some appreciation and basis in those forward contract bids going through kind of the remainder of the crop marketing year, meaning that the basis bids get uh, more positive, more strong as we kind of move further out into the future. And yet we've seen futures market kind of, uh, you know, the carry in the futures market really flatten out and really, you know, have negative carry in those futures markets where those uh, more distant futures contracts are trading below what nearby futures contracts are trading for. And so as a result, right, the basis appreciation is not making up for kind of that inversion in futures markets. And so the incentive to store based on these forward contract bids is really just not there. Now that doesn't mean that storage is a bad scenario, right? Like, so as we've already alluded to, we're in a situation where the market's kind of telling us, you know, we want grain now. Some of that has to do with tight carryovers, right? Or tight projected carryovers. And uh, so the question is, well, at some point, somebody's going to need grain later in the year, right? And that again comes back to your comment about pops and basis and when people need grain later in the crop marketing year. So there very well could be opportunities as we move forward. But it's just like if you're locking in both futures and basis through a forward contract bid, you know, as, as of right now, those, those prices aren't very favorable. Yeah, so thinking about that just a little more, you know, if you think about some of your research going back with respect to seasonality, the seasonality would suggest hang on, right, into the spring. Right. Uh, look for some kind of a weather scare uh, to create some uncertainty. Um, and at the same time, you might see a pop in basis, right? Right. And again, that's... That is, on average, historically, we see more kind of uh, value to be gained by holding on kind of longer into the crop marketing year. But that also means that risk is increasing, right? And so you, you, you have to be careful. I, I, you know, I would definitely wouldn't say, like, if you have corn or soybeans in the bin today, that, oh, you should just hang on to all of that. It's a great strategy. That's not what the research says. The research says, on average, right, holding on longer, there are gains to be had. However, you got to pay attention to what's going on in the current year, and you also have to realize that there is downside risk associated with that strategy, meaning that as we move forward, right, conditions could change to the point where it gets even worse than what it is now. And so, um, you know, I, I'm not advocating that if you have old crop corn and soybeans stored that you should 100% hang on to all of that, but hanging on to some of that is certainly not a bad strategy as, as you think about what the opportunities would be and kind of what the historical trends are in terms of uh, how those prices move throughout the year. But... There is, there is both upside and downside risk associated yeah, with Yeah, so you want to think of it from a portfolio strategy sure. perspective. And in that different people can reach different conclusions on that based on where they're at with respect to their sales. Some people at this stage have sold quite a bit. Yep. Some people have sold very little. And so if you've sold very little, think about perhaps moving some on any kind of a rally. Right. Uh, if you've sold a lot, you might think a little more about hanging on, right? Yeah, and also, again, you know, we talk a lot about this portfolio. It depends on kind of your own kind of risk tolerance, 
your own kind of liquidity and your ability to bear the risk, right? So people who can't bear the risk and could sell today at what are likely profitable prices maybe should do that as opposed to hanging on for a risk that if things move against them, they don't, they don't have the working capital to withstand, right? So you gotta, you gotta factor in a lot of different things when you're thinking about that decision. Good point. So let's take a look at what's taking place with respect to basis around Indiana and a little bit around the Corn Belt. Yeah, so really basis has been very steady for going back a month, two months. Uh, and so there's really not a lot of exciting things to say as it relates to basis, but just kind of move us through some of these charts here. Start out, we're looking at corn basis uh, in central Indiana. And so the blue line there is th historical three-year average. The three-year average is kind of the, the thumb rule that I use uh, for looking at kind of basis trends to forecast basis. Uh, and the black line being what's going on in the current year. And so what you can see is that black line, you know, is maybe uh, at about a, I don't know, five, 10 cent discount below that historical average. So slightly weaker, but very consistent, right? It's moving along that same pattern, just at a slightly lower level. And at this point, I would expect that to continue as we move forward, you know, going into the, the near term horizon. Obviously, as we get further out and we start thinking about new crop and we start thinking about planting intentions and we actually start planting the crop, right? That's when things will start to kind of heat up and things will go either one direction or the other. Because again, based on the research we've done, it's that time of year, right? That late spring, early summer timeframe where basis gets very volatile and very hard to project. And so we really have to pay attention to what's going on in the kind of current market to see which direction it's gonna go. Uh, again, so this is just moving us forward. This is uh, looking at the same thing, but for Southwest Indiana. Again, I use Southwest as a little bit of a proxy for maybe what's going on in those river markets, kind of export driven. Uh, and again, really not much different to say here, really running right along that historical three-year average uh, in the current year. And so again, I would expect that uh, kind of trend to continue as we move forward. Over the near-term horizon, obviously longer term, again, you know, we're paying attention to, to other things that are going on uh, in, in the market. So it is interesting, though, that the Southwest basis is basically hugging the three-year average, whereas the Central Indiana basis is consistently below the three-year average. So the interior markets are weaker relative to the river markets, which suggests the export demand has been stronger. Uh, which is a little bit surprising. Right? It is, you know, on the soybean side, a little more that that story makes sense. On the corn side, the export data doesn't really support that being like a strong driver, but there could be other things other than the export market that are being captured here. Um, but certainly you're right, like the data suggests that there's maybe a little more strength relative to kind of historical basis patterns uh, in, in that Southwest Indiana data than there is in the inland uh, data. But uh, I, you know, I don't have, the, the, the weakness in, in, in kind of the inland basis um, is not, in, in five or 10 cents, again, like I could add in a couple historical years and, and, and move that quite a bit. And so yeah. that five or 10 cents doesn't really make me think there's some huge structural difference between okay. those two, if yeah, that that's makes good. Sense. That's a good point, okay. Uh, and so again, here, we're just drilling down even kind of uh, finer on what we're looking at. So this is um, uh, corn basis specifically on terminals that are on the river, right? So Southwest Indiana uh, incorporates, you know, uh, locations that are without, uh, throughout the Southwest uh, Indiana Crop Reporting District, which is, you know, I don't know, 12, 15 counties. And these are really looking specifically just at river terminals. So, you know, this is a much better kind of 
indication of, of kind of export demand and, and what's happening uh, along the river markets. And again, kind of same story. It's really been tracking right along that historical average. You know, we've seen it kind of bounce up and down uh, here in recent weeks. But again, I, you know, I would expect that to continue to follow that kind of historical pattern unless we see something shift again, like we talked about things that are going on in Ukraine. If we get some indication that they're not going to be able to export corn, this is where we'd be watching for that in terms of a price impact here in the United States, uh, because that would be the markets that would be potentially fulfilling kind of export needs of the world. Uh, and, and that's where we would see that kind of pop in basis. And that's just an example of the type of thing that we would be looking at. It could be other factors that could also kind of move Yeah, that. right. Okay, and then this is the last kind of basis chart here. So this is for uh, Indiana ethanol plants. And so again, I'm just taking all of the ethanol plants in the state of Indiana and I'm averaging them together. So this is kind of an index. They're obviously uh, individual locations with, with stronger or weaker basis than what I'm representing here, but it just gives a good indication of kind of what's going on in those ethanol markets. And as you mentioned, Jim, right, we have kind of lower margins, we've had production uh, going down, and basis kind of follows that, right? Again, it's really been pretty steady, following right along or maybe just below that historical uh, three-year average, maybe even trending downward in recent weeks, which uh, would kind of line up with some of the data that you showed. Uh, and so again, you know, the question is, well, what are we going to see ethanol plant bases do going forward? And, and as you mentioned, I think with where we are uh, with gas prices and gas demand, it's, it's hard to see a scenario where we see a huge run up uh, in basis that we see on that chart there in, in the summer. And again, you got to really think about what's happened the last couple of years in the summer with, with ethanol plants. And, you know, I, I, that is certainly not my forecast for July in terms of where ethanol plant basis is going to be. It's going to be something that's much more in line with uh, something kind of a little further back in history, and I probably should pull some of that kind of historical data out, maybe going to, I don't know, 2015 to 2018 and add that. I've had that before, maybe add that back in, because that would probably give us a little better, a little more realistic idea of what uh, ethanol plant basis is going to be this summer. I mean, thinking about it, uh, strength in gasoline prices would actually pull ethanol up, right? Yeah. And that would improve the margins, perhaps, and, and uh, be positive from that standpoint. So new crop, thinking about that a little bit. Yeah, so here just kind of want to turn people's attention briefly to uh, you know, what new crop opportunities are. And so if you look at um, December 23 corn futures, 595 is right about where they've been uh, yesterday and today. Uh, I go into the crop basis tool and pull out an expected um, basis for next fall delivery uh, for central Indiana of 25 cents under that. That puts you at a cash price of $5.70. Michael's going to talk to us later about his uh, projected break-evens. Uh, and so again, you know, much different price scenario as we look forward into the, the 23 crop than kind of where we are with current prices. And I, that's really what I want people to pay attention to. Uh, and, and uh, you know, are these levels that I'm suggesting people go out and lock in? No, but we need to be paying much closer attention, I think, than we have the last couple of years as we think about margins are really going to be much more important. It's been easy to, to market at a profit the last couple of years. I don't think that's necessarily going to be the case going forward. And so uh, this is really just to get people start thinking about 23. Where are price levels? Where is your cost of production? And start thinking about kind of what your strategies are going to be to manage that. So one of the things you and I were talking about yesterday, uh, Nathan, is the fact that you've got an expected corn basis in there of negative 25 here in central Indiana. And as you look at individual elevator bids, they're 
reflecting that average basis, right? Yeah. Uh, by and large, and stated another way, they don't know much more about basis than what we do with respect to historical averages, right? Sure. So the challenge from a marketing standpoint is uh, you're, you're kind of locking in just an average basis. Now, I guess it, you could always say that that's better than, worse than average basis, right? Right. Uh, but typically with basis, we look for some favorable opportunities. So if you're thinking about pricing this far out, you might want to think about more of a futures-oriented strategy as opposed to cash-forward contracting, right? That's certainly kind of the types of things that we think about, right? So thinking about the future side as we think about pre-harvest marketing, because again, at this point, right, we're going to revert to just some sort of historical pattern for basis. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I would agree. So be think and again, as you think about kind of future strategies prior to harvest, you know, we don't have the slides in here, but we talk a lot about seasonality and futures. And we're, we're definitely not at the, the time of year we were, where we would expect to see kind of seasonal strength, right? So typically uh, seasonality and futures uh, for new crop um, futures contracts tends to kind of slowly kind of appreciate as we move through the, the winter, or early spring months, even early summer months. And so we tend to see those corn futures uh, reach their seasonal highs again that's just on average in um, june ish uh, maybe into the beginning of july depending on kind of what we're looking at and so you know that would be something that people would, would maybe want to be paying attention to uh, as we move forward not something like today i'm going to run out and you know lock up uh, all of my corn futures for 23 crop uh, but something you're going to start paying attention to as we move forward looking for potential kind of weather rallies uh, in the spring months all right, and then the last thing here, again, this is just giving people kind of a, a little bit of a way to do some kind of scenario analysis on what their budgets are looking like for 23. So this is the farm distribution or farm doc price distribution tool. And so basically this is looking at a distribution of potential uh, price outcomes at expiration of the December 23 corn futures contract. So basically where could that contract expire, right? And it gives you kind of a, a range of potential outcomes and the likelihood of those outcomes. So obviously, you know, as we sit today, we have a current price right around $5.95. There's a pretty good chance that that's the most likely outcome. But again, that price could go up, could go down. And so I've highlighted here on the chart kind of the 25th percentile and 75th percentile of that distribution, just as kind of like maybe a, a, a lower price scenario. Where could we be? A one in four chance, right? Right, right above $5. Uh, and again, that's on the future side. You got to adjust that for basis. And then a 75% chance or a 25% chance of being above uh, is that 668. And again, that's a futures price. You'd have to adjust that for basis. And so as you're doing kind of some scenario planning and, and kind of looking at your budgets, Michael, we always talk about, mm -hmm. you know, run that most likely scenario, run the downside scenario, run and kind of look at kind of what your financial position is going to be at each of those markers and how that might affect a lot of different things in terms of the strategy of the farm. One of those obviously being kind of the marketing plan, but then other things as well. And I think it's, we're going to talk about soybeans here in a little bit. There, there's, there's substantially more downside risk with corn right now than there is for soybeans. Uh, and that's what, that's what these, these charts are telling us. And so it just, it just emphasizes the importance of taking advantage of, of seasonal highs, looking for weather shocks as marketing opportunities, uh, just sitting, on, sitting, sitting, sitting on, on the new crop may not be a good idea this year. Yeah, yeah just to put it in perspective, that 509, that where you've got the 25% probability, Putting your basis number on that takes you down to 480. What 484? Yep. Uh, that's not a that's not a that's price well that anybody. Below anybody's breaking. Yeah, nobody wants to sell at that price, right? So, all right, let's take a look at soybeans real quick. Uh, again, a little bit like corn. There weren't a lot of changes on the soybean balance sheet either. 
Um, really, the only change uh, the USDA made was to reduce the uh, anticipated crushing of soybeans. They were at 2.245 on the January report. This month, they backed that off to 2.23, and that simply bumped up the expected uh, carryover from 210. Uh, 210 million bushels to 225 million bushels. And then USDA did bump up the season average farm price from 1420 to 1430, but that doesn't really reflect the forecast. What that really reflects is the strength that's already occurred, right? So prices at, uh, in January in particular were a little stronger than uh, USDA had anticipated previously, and they simply had to reflect that in the average farm price. So that's really not suggesting strong prices going forward. Um, so the reduction in the soybean crush estimate did push up the ending stocks to 225. It's just interesting to go back and see the variability in those ending stocks estimates. And, um, you know, the chart illustrating that going back to May just points out how much variability there is. In May, USDA was anticipating a carryover of over 300 million bushels. They dropped that down as far as 200 on the September report. And since then, we've been bouncing around this 200 to 225 million bushel category. That's still relatively tight carryover, uh, but it does illustrate that the challenge that we have with respect to anticipating what those carryover amounts might be. Um, the soybean export forecast didn't change this month. It's still at 1.99 billion bushels. Uh, that's down from 2.05 from the fall estimates, October through November, uh, at December actually. And earlier in the year, they were at 2.2 billion bushels. So um, the real challenge with the exports, though, is what's going on in South America. And, and of course, we're in that time frame when we're watching weather forecasts from South America in the morning, at noon, and in the afternoon, right? I mean, it's, we're at that stage of, of the season down there. Um, so a lot of variability there with respect to how much competition we're going to get from South America. The early reports suggest some production problems in Argentina. Uh, but by and large, not too much problem is uh, in the way of, of uh, uh, Brazil, and Brazil is looking at a big crop, and that's going to be very difficult for us to see much improvement in those soybean exports. You think about it from a seasonal standpoint, from this point forward, the world really turns to South America uh, in terms of importing soybeans. So uh, we're not likely to see much change or much improvement in that uh, export forecast, and if there is a risk on that export forecast, it'd probably be softer. Um, so the ending stocks estimate, um, a little higher than it was last month, and in terms of usage, what that means is we cross over that 5% barrier, but just barely. Uh, estimated carryover is 5.2% of usage on the 22 crop. Uh, that's down from last year. Last year we wound up, it's just over 6%. The year before that was 57 That's still a tight carryover. I mean, if you go back again, thinking about uh, 2011, 2012, we were hanging at right around 5%. The 2013 crop was the tight one. We got down all the way to 3%, so we're not that tight. But uh, you look at that from a longer-term historical perspective, this is a tight soybean inventory to carry over from one year to the next, and that suggests some volatility is still out there, right? And it's particularly interesting given the fact that we planted 88 million acres of soybeans, roughly. That's a lot of soybean acres. Uh, we had below trend yield. And so our production just was not as high as what we were, what we were thinking it was going to be, and so tight stocks. Yeah, so I think with respect to both corn and soybeans, one of the things that these carryovers point out is weather is going to be very important this yes. summer, right? I mean, that, we said that last year. It's going to be true again this year. Um, so you've taken a look at the soybean storage opportunities. Yeah, so Ken, just starting out uh, with kind of these forward contract bids for, for one location to kind of give us an idea of what's going on there. 
again, pretty similar, you know, maybe uh, a little bit of an opportunity to store over the next four weeks or so. Uh, but as you move kind of further out in the crop marketing year, it's very similar to what I said uh, for the corn situation. And that is that we've seen the market shift to where there is some appreciation and basis in those forward contract bids for soybeans. Uh, but the futures market is just giving us no carry. And as a result, right, we see uh, those prices uh, being well below what I'm uh, estimating uh, for those break evens. And so again, you know, at present, if you're looking at a forward contract being the tool that you're going to use, very little incentive to be holding on to soybeans if, if that's how you're going to market that grain. Alternatively, like we have already mentioned, right, if you're looking at some other, uh, other strategy uh, where, um, you know, maybe you're going to lock in futures but wait to see what happens with basis, there are certain opportunities, especially as we talk about tight carryovers to see some, some basis movement as we move forward into the crop marketing year. But just the basis that bid into these forward contract bids is not going to give us uh, kind of favorable storage prices right now. Again, I'm going to run through these pretty quickly. There's just not a lot of things to say here as it relates to soybean basis. Very steady. Uh, again, very close to being uh, right along that historical two-year average in this case. The two years is what I, I default to for, for soybeans. Uh, so this is central Indiana. You know, really a pretty steady situation as we look back over the past two months or so. You know, one thing, these, this chart and the other charts that was all kind of point to, Nathan, is the value of storage at harvest time. Yeah. Right? And it was an unusual situation last fall when we had the disruption because of the river. Uh, but the collapse in basis, uh, and, and that kind of stuff happens occasionally, right? Yeah. And so if you think about, you know, the value of uh, storage facilities and the opportunity to store, uh, the rapid recovery in basis as we got past the river situation uh, is is pretty dramatic and it made a huge di difference, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it really is. I mean, you know, again, there's a unique situation in the fall of 22, but it just shows you, I mean, look at the appreciation in basis from where it hit its low in the middle of October and, you know, really recovered by the beginning of December. You know, is there going to be more basis play as we move forward? Potentially, but you've already, right, made a ton in basis appreciation just in that time frame. And without storage, you didn't really have that opportunity, right? And, and it's unpredictable, but these things happen, yeah. right? Uh, you know, go back a few years to Katrina. Uh, that created a, a, not an identical, but a similar situation, at least in some locations, uh, with respect to basis collapsing because of river transport being tied up. So when you think about investment decisions, Michael, we like to project things, you know, on spreadsheets. But one thing to keep in mind is you, these kind of situations do pop up occasionally. And the people that are able to take advantage of that uh, can earn a very positive return. Yeah, and definitely there, there's a benefit from spreading sales, maybe selling some at harvest, but then storing storing a, a pretty major portion of that to the, after the first of the year and even spreading those sales all the way through April. I think you, your research says all the way through May, perhaps, yeah. uh, often pays. All right, let's take a look at some of the other charts as well. Yeah, so again, this is the same thing. We're looking at southwest Indiana. Again, you know, if you go back to the fall, as we just talked about, I mean, it's even more of a, a huge kind of dip and then recovery there. But again, if you look at what's been happening in recent months, again, very steady, very much in line uh, with that historical average. And then again, this is just zeroing in specifically on those river terminals, looking at soybean basis. Again, it follows a very similar shape to what you saw uh, from the, the regional data and the crop basis tool. You might see a little bit more strength here in terms of uh, current basis, maybe being 15 to 20 cents, uh, depending on kind of how you did your math there, stronger. 
uh, than that historical average. Again, maybe dipping down closer to that historical average in recent weeks. And again, I think that gets back to some of what's been going on with exports. You know, if you look back over the last month or two, we've had relative strength in soybean exports. That maybe is starting to, to soften, and I think basis there is maybe reflecting that a little bit as we see that move towards that historical average. And then lastly, this is uh, the soybean processor. So again, similar to ethanol basis, I'm just taking all of the processors in the state of Indiana, uh, and I'm just averaging them into kind of one index of processor basis. So again, there's individual locations that are obviously above or below this. But again, similar to basically all the other basis charts that I've shown here, Pretty steady uh, if you look back over the past couple of months, uh, pretty well in line with what I have for that two-year historical average. Maybe a little weaker here in recent uh, weeks, but uh, again, not far enough below that historical average to make me think there's some huge structural difference. Uh, and then, you know, obviously, again, as we move forward, I would expect kind of steady, maybe following that pattern. Again, similar to ethanol. You know, uh, as we move into the summer months, we've had some kind of wild basis in the last couple of years. And so that, that historical average, as we move into those summer months, in this case looks really positive, but if you pulled in some other years, right, you'd pull in some more negative years and pull that down. And so we, I probably need to go back and maybe add some more historical context to these charts as we move into the summer and people part, start thinking about both upside potential on basis opportunities, as well as kind of downside potential. So, Michael, uh, one of the things you and I keep talking about is the increasing demand coming for renewable fuels and the impact that could have on soybeans going forward. And so I look at a chart like this and I, st I, I literally wonder what that's going to look like in two or three years. Mm, yeah. uh, because the demand at the processor level is going to increase. Um, it's it's going to change the soybean market pretty substantially. Definitely. Uh, if we were, if we were sitting here doing this webinar three years from now, yeah, that chart's going to look different. I think, right? Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, I guess from our standpoint and producer standpoint, it's something to be thinking about, right, with respect to how that's going to shake out over time. And there's going to be some differential impacts as you move around the corn belt. I think that's the key. It's going to be where are you relative to that increased capacity and that's you know, something that you're gonna have to pay attention to in your local market and how that's gonna influence yeah. that. Because not everybody is gonna benefit the same way. Yeah. But, it's, but it's definitely gonna change the relative profitability in sure. some key states. I mean, Iowa's putting in quite a bit of process, you know, biodiesel process, against my understanding. You know, that's gonna be, that's gonna change the d dynamics there. Because yeah. typically Iowa has quite a bit of continuous corn. Uh, moving forward, we'll see if they have as much continuous corn once that once that uh, once those plants are in place. Yeah, I think uh, I guess for viewers, we're going to be doing some more analysis on this going forward because it's going to be a big topic the next uh, three to five years, uh, and it's going to have a big impact, I think, on what takes place with respect to corn and soybean acreage and profitability. So, in the short run, though, as we're probably not going to have much impact on that this year, this crop year. So that's a little farther in the future. Sure. So looking at this uh, new crop soybean opportunities. Yeah. So again, I just want to draw folks attention to kind of what's going on in terms of prices for the 23 crop. So again, November 23 soybean futures today, yesterday, right in that 1372 range. I'm using a 40 cent basis, 40 cent under that uh, for uh, October delivery in central Indiana based on the crop basis tool. I put you at an expected cash price of $13.32. Um, that's down quite a bit since last month's webinar. I think 20, maybe 30 cents. Uh, I can't remember exactly what that number was, but those prices have kind of pulled back a little bit. But again, it's the same thing for, as what I said for corn. Really, this is getting people kind of to start paying attention and looking what's going on in that 23 crop. Uh, you know, 
we're not at a time of year where I'm like, you know, encouraging strong sales, but I, we are at a point in the year where I think people really need to start paying attention and thinking about kind of what, if any kind of pre-harvest uh, marketing strategy they're going to be using. So Michael, we'll talk about this in a minute, but uh, compared to break-evens? This is actually more favorable than corn right now. Uh, we're going to show that, but uh, soybeans still look more profitable despite the fact uh, that we've taken 20 to 30 cents out, out of the soybean price in the last few weeks. And then lastly, again, this is the FarmDoc price distribution tool. And really, I'm just wanting to show kind of the range of potential outcomes, right, uh, associated with that November 23 soybean futures contract. So again, if you're looking at kind of where we are currently, 1372 kind of is the most likely scenario where we sit today. But you really want to be thinking about what's my downside risk, what's my upside potential. So again, looking at that 25th and 75th percentile is a, is a kind of good way to think about that. Uh, so on the downside, right, we've got about a one in four chance of being below that $12.28. We've got a 25% chance of being above $14.96. And Michael made the comment earlier, and I agree with him completely, there's a lot more kind of downside risk on the corn side, and this chart really does a good yes. job of d demonstrating that. And so that's really where I'd be, you know, saying from a downside risk perspective on corn, you really have to be paying attention. But again, there's downside risk in both. So it's just more severe. Yeah, on the and corn. you look at that 25%, we're much closer to the break even for a high, high productivity soil than we were for corn. Yep. Much closer. Speaking of break-evens, break let's take a look at this. And these are moving a little bit. We've seen some drop in fertilizer prices recently. We'll see how that plays out of that, if that continues. And so, and so certainly the 23 numbers could change a little bit here in the next few weeks as we get closer to planting. Uh, but we were talking about the 570 corn price. That doesn't compare very favorably to that uh, break-even on the average productivity soil. And so, uh, so that means some of those opportunity costs are, are perhaps might not be covered. Uh, you know, specifically, if you own land, you might not get as good a return as you would have otherwise, uh, you know, given where we're at in, in that uh, uh, comparison between cost and, and, and revenue. On the high productivity, on the other hand, it looks like there's some profit to be made there. Uh, and so that's certainly good news. There's not a lot of times where I sit there this time of year and, and see that. Uh, and so, yeah, compared to the last couple of years, it doesn't look quite as good. But th that's still not a, a train wreck by any stretch of the imagination uh, when you're looking at that high productivity rel relative to the prices. So, Michael, it's always useful, I think, to remind viewers when you look at low, average, and high productivity, what kind of yields are you plugging in there? Uh, 100, about 160 bushel corn on the low. We're looking at about 185 on the high. And then 216 uh, 215 to 220 on, on our, our 185 on the average and, and two, 215 to 220 on the high. Okay. So. Soybeans? On the soybeans, we're, we're looking at 45, 55, and, and 66 uh, in terms of the soybean yields. I know there's some people that get a lot higher than 66, a lot higher than 216 corn, but that's what we're currently looking here. Uh, if, you, if you're above that and your cost structure is similar to what we're seeing in the budget, which certainly it probably is for some producers, that means your break even is even lower. And so when you, let's start with a high there, you look at a 12.27 break even, uh, if you take the basis out of that, that lower 25%, you're, you're getting closer uh, to that. And then if we have some relief from uh, fertilizer prices here in the next few weeks, you're getting closer to that $12 break even. And so that's what I mean when the downside risk is not as big uh, for soybeans as it is for corn. And even on that, even on that average productivity, you've got, you've got a break even price that's below that expected cash price we were talking about, $13.35. And so, and so the picture for soybeans look, looks pretty good, actually. 
And that has implications for acreage, perhaps. Yeah, obviously, I, we don't know exactly what the market is is, 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 is incorporating there for acreage. I would think they're not incorporating a small number, given the, uh, given the, the tight stocks to use. That would suggest that we might see a number similar to last year. I don't know what you guys thought thoughts are. 88 million acres. That's a lot of soybeans, but uh, you know the low stocks to use and 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 profit prospects looking pretty good. We could easily see that much, that many soybean acres. That would be my guess as well. We're going to yeah. see. I mean, the the profitability picture has been this way for quite some time. Yes. So it's not like this is new. Yeah. And one of the ways we can look at that, and I, I kind of like this chart. It's got a lot of numbers in it. So let's let's walk through this uh, carefully. We're first of all we're comparing second year soybeans to rotation corn. Uh, and this is more common as you get close to the Ohio border, uh, but, but nevertheless, uh, uh, you know, there are some people that, that grow uh, second-year soybeans, and so, uh, so there's at least a few people that, that make this decision on the margin. Uh, you know, not everybody's looking at the corn-soybean rotation, so that's the first caveat. We've gotten green here, a 1350 soybean price. Actually, it's closer to 1335, and so, uh, and so the numbers would be a little bit lower than what we're showing on that, that green band. But let's jump over to the high productivity, uh, where it's a little closer. Uh, you know, if, you, if you've got 1350 uh, for your soybeans, uh, in order to grow corn, you need a corn price of 583. We're not there right now, but it's getting closer. Uh, you know, particularly given the fact that, that soybeans have, have declined, uh, you know, 25, 30 cents here in the last few weeks, it's getting closer on the high productivity uh, to kind of a wash uh, between corn and soybeans. On the average productivity, it certainly favors uh, soybeans at this point. And the other factor, which we talked more about last year, but I think it's still a factor this year, it's just the high input cost yes. to put in corn, right? That's why I keep focusing on that fertilizer. If we see some, we, we see some relief in fertilizer prices here, that's going to make corn more attractive because obviously corn gobbles a lot of nitrogen. Good point. Uh, now let's switch gears here and talk about crop insurance. I, I, think, it's, I, I think it's never too early to think about this, this crop insurance because this is a very important decision uh, for most farms. And so what we've shown here is the projected, uh, which is the February, February futures price uh, for, for uh, uh, Dease corn. Uh, but what we've shown here is the projected price since 2007. Uh, we're similar to where we were in 11, 12, 13. We don't have 23 on here, but we've got it on the on the title here. So far, it looks like the, the price is going to be around that 595. Uh, the main point I want to make on this chart, it's very similar to last year. And so if we have similar vol volatility as we had last year, which is probably a good guess at this point, this early in the month, we're looking at similar premiums uh, that we saw last year. Also, that means your revenue guarantee is going to be pretty strong because uh, you, you know, you're going to have a relatively high projected price there. And so similar situation we had last year in terms of premiums uh, and, uh, and the revenue guarantees. Uh, now I want to look at something that I think is very important to think about. I mean, we, we talked about uh, drops in prices, and so what, I, what we try to do in this chart is say, how common is it uh, for price to, to fall 15% between the projected crop insurance price and, and the harvest uh, crop insurance price? And I was a little surprised myself. There's only three out of the 16 years uh, where that's actually happened since 2007, and that hasn't really happened in the last nine years. Uh, and so it's not real common. Yeah, it's a, that's a very important part of revenue protection. Just in case it does happen, you have that coverage, but it's not real common. And, and so my point there is, is if you're thinking about increasing coverage level, you get a higher revenue guarantee because you think the prices are going to, to, going to decline. You need to think about 
crop insurance with your marketing strategies? Is there some other way I could get, I, I, I could protect that price besides crop insurance? Yeah, I mean, the reason you're using that 85% is obviously for 85% yeah. coverage, it would uh, a drop of 15% yeah. in price by itself would trigger a payment. And so the conclusion is that's not very likely, right? Yeah. Based on history, right? And so that even becomes less likely as you think about 80% and move from say 75 to 80%, right? So, um, Nathan, what are some other things people might be thinking about there in terms of? So again, some of the strategies that we've already discussed, right? Like, so one of those would be um, hedging with futures pre-harvest. So looking at those futures prices now and especially over the next couple months as we expect to see seasonal strength, looking for any sort of rallies associated with weather or any sort of planning conditions in, in locking in that component, right? That's kind of what we've, we've already alluded to as being a strategy where you're not locking in the basis component where you know some sort of Ford contract is giving you an average uh, or kind of risk adjusted basis for being that far into the future, uh, but yet you're taking advantage of a potential uh, favorable uh, futures price, right? And then you can decide kind of what you want to do later as it relates to you know, in, in uh, a lot of our kind of marketing uh, education programs, we talk about, well, you could just sell cash in the fall, take whatever basis is there, uh, or, right, we could roll that future forward, uh, think about a strategy where we're storing in addition to doing our pre-harvest marketing. So there's lots of different things on the future side where it's allowing us to, again, separate futures and basis and take advantage of, of differences in the patterns in those two things. And so again, that allows us to uh, lock in uh, favorable futures prices and not have to worry about that downside risk uh, on, on our crop insurance side that Michael's kind of pointing to here. Yeah, and this is a more relevant discussion for Southern Indiana. We should point out in, in Northern Indiana, I'm not saying that you're gonna probably move from that 85% coverage level because that's still a, a good product. You get a lot of bang for your buck in Northern Indiana for the 85%. But as you move into Southern Indiana, particularly spe specific counties down there, the, the yield risk increases dramatically. And so there's a very large increase in, 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 the, in the price of crop insurance as we move from 80% to 85%. That's the people who are really, this, this really is, is very important. If, you, if you've been buying that 80%, you're thinking about going to 85% because you're, you're, you're worried about where, where prices might head, you need to think about marketing strategies in addition uh, to perhaps increasing coverage. So we should do a, a future webinar or podcast and talk about some of these strategies because there's a whole host of option strategies you could layer on that as well that, that might be pretty advantageous. That's right. So let's take a look at those premiums that you alluded to, Yeah, Michael. this is actually Posey County. I just picked a, I just picked a county in, in southwest Indiana where I had a case form. I have a case form uh, in Posey County that I use for class. And so there's a lot of assumptions behind this, uh, the, 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 what we're going to discuss here. And so let's discuss those. Those are in the top, uh, top green uh, uh, bar there, if you will. Uh, and, and one of the assumptions is a 595 projected price with volatility of 0.23. That's not a real strong assumption. That's about where we're at. Uh, the farm and county trend yield of 183. That's about the trend yield down down there, and so that's that's a fairly realistic assumption. And then we're assuming the projected price is greater than the harvest price. The only reason I'm assuming that uh, is is so that we can come up with a revenue guarantee that 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 right now. Uh, otherwise, you know, if the harvest price is higher, then the revenue guarantee goes up. Just just remember that. And so let's let's take a look at the different premiums, different uh, uh, farm level revenue guarantees for these different products. 
So we start with 75%. I mean, I know there's some people in, in southern Indiana that pick the 75%, uh, at least historically. Uh, you're looking at an expected premium, pretty reasonable, 1829, and you get a pretty large, pretty good revenue guarantee of 817. Now we got to remember that uh, to put a corn crop in is going to cost north of $1,100 this year, and so you got to put that in perspective when you look at that revenue guarantee. Uh, we're not talking about additional county revenue revenue guaranteed because that's that ECO products which we're going to be coming to uh, shortly. Let's move on to 80% coverage. Uh, we we moved that the, the uh, estimated premium moves up to $31 uh, but we get a pretty big bump in, in, in revenue guarantee and so I I think for a lot of people moving from 75 to 80% makes a lot of sense. Uh, you're not talking about that big a bump in a premium and a, and a pretty large uh, bump in revenue guarantee. It's when we go to 80 to 85% and then go into the ECE ECO products where we really got to think twice about whether that's what we want to do because notice how big the, the increase in premium is going from 80% to 85%, a $25 per acre increase. And I know some people I talk to, once that, once that crop insurance cost gets above $30, substantially above $30, they start shying away uh, you know, from some of those products. And so that's a pretty large increase. You are getting an increase in, in the farm level to revenue guarantee. Uh, so let's look at that, $55. Then if we look at that ratio, Jim, of those two, uh, that's, that's 45%. And so you have to ask yourself, how likely is it uh, you know, uh, you know, for for uh, for uh, for me to actually actually uh, collect uh, indemnity payments? Uh, it's got to be pretty high likelihood uh, to make that move from 80 to 85 percent. Yeah, I mean, looking at that ratio, it would suggest that that implies you'd have a loss every couple of years, yes. right? Uh, if you have a loss, for example, every five years, you'd be better off sticking with the 80 percent. Yeah. Another thing I should have said at the beginning: this is enterprise units. And so when you're talking about enterprise units, your chance of loss is not near as big as it would be with basic units, for example. And so, uh, and, and so that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough decision, uh, moving from 80 to 85%. And then we just illustrate here uh, how much bump in, in revenue guarantee and, and, and relative cost of moving to these uh, ECO products, uh, the 90% and the 95%. They're rather expensive. I, I think they, would, they, fit, they fit for some people that, that, that really can't take much of a chance of, of, uh, of, of of, uh, of, of, of having a revenue guarantee that's substantially below their cost of production. So you do get a pretty big revenue guarantee. Let's just look at those. You get the $926 for the 90% and the 95%, and you get an additional county revenue guarantee of $54 for the 90% and $108 for the 95%. Why am I calling that additional county revenue guarantee? Well, remember, when you go to the ECO products, uh, the, the, the ECO portion is, is looking at county yields, not farm yields. That's one reason why some people don't like the ECO products, because you are, you are uh, mixing apples and oranges there. Your farm yields may not track county yields, uh, and, and so you, you may, that make, may make you uncomfortable. The other problem some people have is it's a pretty big price tag. Uh, you know, $71 for the 90% and, and uh, $93 for the 95%. Certainly not uh, cheap products. You said uh, reasonably expensive. I mean, <laughs> that's like the biggest understatement I've ever heard, Michael. $93 an acre for crop insurance. Yeah, I was talking about that. Some people get uncomfortable as you get north of $30. That's triple. It's, it's possible to dig into the RMA database, I think, and figure out how many people do that, and there can't be very many, right? No, it's a pretty small percent at, at, at this point. But I, I do think there is some people out there, having said that, I do think there is some people out there that these products might be attractive. It's just a small group. 
Yeah, it, it's you really have to think hard about whether or not you yeah. want to make that it, kind of investment. You know, insurance. I'll just kind of give you my, my thoughts here. I, I think down in uh, down in southern Indiana, I think that eighty percent kind of hits the sweet spot. Uh, when you're looking at northern India, and this this is this is where people have gravitated towards, and so I'm not saying uh, this is not rocket science. This is where they've gravitated towards. And in northern Indiana, we've gravitated towards that 85 percent because I looked up the premium for White County, for example, and for 85 percent uh, revenue protection enterprise unit in White County, you're looking at about 34, 35 dollar premium, and so it's just more reasonable up in northern Indiana, uh, you know, to, to buy that 85 percent, and so a lot of people buy the 85 percent. But I think uh, the thumb roll, which we actually got from a colleague of ours yeah. at Kansas State, Art Barnaby, when he spoke at the Top Farmer Conference a few years ago, is the one that kind of pointed out, you could look yeah. at those simple ratios of what it costs to get the additional coverage versus what the additional revenue guarantee is. That's a very helpful thumb rule kind of way of looking at it. And, as, and then from your standpoint as a buyer of the insurance product, just think about what is the likelihood that I'm going to, in this case, have a loss every couple of years, or is it much less frequent than that? And Keep in mind when you're doing selecting a crop insurance strategy, it's really a multi-year decision, right? You really want to think about what am I going to do, not just in 2023, but what's my strategy likely to be for several years in a row? And when you look at it that way, then I think it's a lot easier to make those choices with respect to what the coverage level should be. So with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Um, you can get email notices of our upcoming webinars from the center. Just sign up for it on our website. Uh, you can also subscribe to our Ag Economy Barometer Report. Uh, same thing, we'll send out an email when you, uh, that comes out on the first Tuesday of every month. Um, and then, of course, you can listen to our podcast, Purdue Commercial Agcast. Uh, that's available on our website, so you can listen to it right there on the website. Or you, you can subscribe to any of the major uh, podcast providers. We're available on all of them. So uh, more information available at purdue.edu slash commercial ag. And so on behalf of my colleagues, uh, Nathan Thompson and Michael Langemeyer, and the Center for Commercial Agriculture. I want to thank you for joining us. I'm Jim Minter.